We're going to have prayer in a moment, and I would ask you, whether you're here or at home, that you would pray that the Spirit of God would be with us this morning, and that He would lead us to exactly what He wants to deliver, not me, because I'm a frail human being, and it's only through the power of God that we can ever accomplish anything good. So let us pray together before we begin. Father in heaven, I need you to hide me behind the cross. I'm a sinner, weak, and frail, yet your word, Lord, promises that we can do all things through Christ that strengthens us. So, Lord, I need a strengthening this morning, and I pray that you would bless the words that will be shared, that it will be only your Holy Spirit delivering them, and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. The word essential has been used quite a bit over the last few months. You've heard about it in the news, I'm sure, this concept of essential workers. Because of the challenges that we've been facing with COVID, we have seen this word termed to define what is important to be continuing to be carried on, whether it be grocery stores or hospitals or Um, law enforcement, any of those kinds of things have been deemed essential, meaning that without them, certain difficulties would arise. As a matter of fact, the Economic Policy Institute in May of, of 2020 talked about some of the essential workers that exist. There are over 55 million essential workers Out of the 350-some million individuals in our country, some of the job descriptions that you would maybe be interested to know is food and agriculture, obviously, emergency services, transportation, warehouse delivery, industrial, commercial, residential facilities, healthcare, government, communication, IT, financial sector, energy sector, waste and water management, thankful for that, and so forth and so on. The word essential means absolutely necessary, indispensable. And being a teacher, I'll give you some examples. An engine is essential to the movement of an automobile. Have you ever had your engine go out in your car? You can't go anywhere. Water is essential to the experience of swimming. You can't tell someone that you have gone swimming if there isn't any water. Water is essential to the experience of swimming. Air is essential to a bird for flight. A parachute is essential for the parachuter to land safely. A brush is essential to the artist for painting. A tongue is essential for the speaker to speak. The heart is essential for the body to live. A core message is essential to carrying forward a mission. A core message is essential to carrying forward a mission. And friends, I would say to you, I would propose to you this morning that I believe 
the Seventh-day Adventist church is God's essential church to herald His end-time message to a dying world. And in companionship with that, I would also propose to you that the mission of Adventist education is an essential and relevant part of the Seventh-day Adventist church's end-time work of spreading the three angels' message to a dying world. Why do I say that? Well, it's not I that said it. If you look at the book Education, it is replete with reasons and rationale as to why Adventist education is an essential part of the church's mission in these last days. Here is an example, Education, page 15. What is the object of Adventist education? Here it is. To restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul that the divine purpose in his creation might be realized. This was to be the work of redemption. This is the object of education, the great object of life. Isn't the mission of the church all about redemption? So, if our stated blueprinted mission in the book Education is consistent with the church's mission, then Adventist education is a relevant part of the church's eschatological work. Can you say amen? Whether here or at home. I want to ask you a hard question. If this, based upon what I've said, is true, why does Adventist education currently have approximately 30% of the church's children attending? Why does the Adventist educational system currently only have approximately 30% of the church's children attending Adventist schools. Now this 30% has stayed relatively consistent. It has ebbed and flowed throughout the history of Adventist education. I believe the highest percentage was in 1976, somewhere up in the 40 percentage point area. But if Adventist education is truly connected and correlated with the mission of the Seventh-day Adventist Church as it was ordained to be and stated in the book Education, why is there approximately 70% of our families that are not investing in that experience for their own children? I'm going to share a little bit with you relative to that question. Because I think there, are, there is, rather, a multifaceted explanation. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Kings. 2 Kings, chapter 5. I really appreciated the presentation that Dr. Dwayne Kovrig here at Andrews University did relative to this specific passage and story as it relates to Adventist education 
and also a presentation I heard by Dr. Baldwin from Andrews University relative to this story. Incidentally, I just want to say, last summer I had the opportunity of attending the Andrews University Leadership Orientation, and I was tremendously blessed by that. I, I was tremendously impacted by the professors in that program and the spiritual focus that they brought uh, to the point of leadership and what it means to be a Christian leader. Very much appreciated that. Dr. Kovrig actually is a professor in that department. 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 1. Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but, the Bible says, he was a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. She waited on Naaman's wife. Then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. What an impact that little girl must have had on her family that she was serving in order for them to view her advice as so credible as to have Captain Naaman go to his own king, who then forwarded him on to Israel. And Naaman, verse 4, went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. Then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now, be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Can you imagine? You know, when it comes to a crisis, we basically have two choices. We can panic, or we can turn to God. And in this case, the king panicked. Then it happened, in verse 7, when the king of Israel read the letter, that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. But Naaman became furious. And went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. You see, friends, the human heart tends to want to prescribe to God how God should heal us of our infirmities. But any time we take that posture, we potentially risk a great catastrophe. And that not only applies to us individually, it applies to us corporately as well. 
in whatever entity we're talking about. Whenever we decide how God should reply and respond to our need, we have just become God. And that, or tried to become God, rather, which is incredibly dangerous. Lucifer himself did that. No, the only thing we should do is follow the counsel that God has given us. Because we know that God cares for us and He is seeking our greatest good. And if we follow Him and set our own concepts aside, we will always come out healed. And isn't that the thing that we desire the most in life? To be healed. And here's why Naaman was upset. The Bible doesn't say he was just angry or frustrated. He was furious. And here's why, verse 12. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be cleaned? So he turned and went away in a rage. You see, the comparison of these two rivers, if you were to look at them, was quite different from an external perspective. The rivers of Damascus were clear and, 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 and transparent and fresh and clean. The Jordan River, even if you looked at some pictures today of the Jordan River, you would see that it's muddy that it appears dirty, that there isn't any way if you bathe in the Jordan River, you would end up becoming clean. And yet, God told Naaman to bathe in the Jordan River. Why? Turn with me to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. Moses has died. Joshua has taken over the leadership of Israel under God's leadership. And now the children of Israel are poised at the Jordan River, ready to cross over into the promised land. Their wanderings are almost over from their wilderness experience, and now they are getting ready to go over the Jordan into, notice, the promised land. And in Joshua chapter 4, verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourself twelve men from the, from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men who he, whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe. You see, everyone 
in the camp of Israel. Everyone was all in. And Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, that this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. And the children of Israel did so, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the midst of the Jordan, as the Lord had spoken to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel, and carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Now listen to this part. Verse 9. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests who bore the Ark of the Covenant stood, and there they are there to this day. You see, when Elisha told Naaman to go wash in the Jordan River, the Jordan River had something that no other river in the entire world had. It had an altar underneath the water at the very bottom of the Jordan where the Ark of the Covenant had been, where the priests had stood and the waters of the Jordan had backed themselves up 20-some miles upstream. There in the Jordan River was the blessing and the healing that God wanted to give Naaman if he would be humble enough to recognize it. There was not a blessing contained in the rivers of Farpar. There was not a blessing contained in any other river, Abana, you name it. There was no blessing. The blessing was in the Jordan River because of the altar that was there. When God told Naaman to bathe in the Jordan River seven times, the symbolism there is so incredibly powerful and applicable to us today. You see, I think for many of us in our society, we view from a human perspective that there are so many other options available where we can educate our children. There are so many other places that, are, that have better buildings than what we have, that have greater technology than what we might have, that have the latest and the greatest from human perspective. And yet, brothers and sisters, I would humbly submit to you that none of those other options have the blessing of God buried in the Jordan River like Adventist education. And we have to ask ourselves an honest question. Are we viewing what the world has to offer as better than what God has ordained to be? a training ground for our children. 
Now, I also want to talk a little bit about Adventist education. I told you at the beginning that there were multiple reasons, potentially, why only 30% of our membership have their children in Adventist education. There's a lot of reasons, some very justified. And we could probably spend the entire week having a panel discussing what the different reasons are. There are financial challenges. There are certain uh, difficulties that exist. And so I'm not attempting in any way to put a criticism on a specific situation that requires a different choice. Please understand that. I'm speaking more in a generality relative to this percentage. But it is a situation that we have to ask a serious question of. And furthermore, we in Adventist education have to ask ourselves the serious question of why do we have only 30% of our precious young people in our schools? Is it, is it something that we in Adventist education have to take responsibility for? You see, myself being an educator for almost 20 years now and superintendent of the Michigan Conference, I have to ask myself the question, is there something that I have done or is there something that we as a system have done that has caused us to look outside of the Jordan River to the rivers of Damascus as well? When we as an educational system drift a little bit off of the center post of what God has ordained Adventist education to be, we must then take responsibility for that. And I think there are wonderful and phenomenal things happening in Adventist education. I am a product of Adventist education, so this is not a complete generalization in that direction either. But if you look at, at Adventist education, we have to ask ourselves at this time in Earth's history, are we completely aligned with what God has asked Adventist education to be? We cannot just look at parents and at families and say, how come your children are not in our schools? We must first, before we do that, look at ourselves and ask, are we aligned with what God has called Adventist education to be? Friends, God has not called Adventist education to be as good as the other institutions and school systems around us. God has not asked us to compete with other institutions. If you look at Daniel and his three friends, their primary goal was to be faithful to God. That was it. And because of their faithfulness to God, there was no competition. <laughs> they were ten times wiser than all of the rest of the students that were there. They weren't concerned with looking to the left and looking to the right and making sure that their test scores or their place at the finish line was just ahead of those. They were looking to God. And if we are going to be part of the church's eschatological mission at the end of time, delivering the three angels' messages, then we must understand that we have to have a vertical connection and have God define where we are as a system, not looking around to see where we rank or how good our, our, our this or our that is. Does that mean we don't care about quality? Oh, no. Oh, no. Daniel cared about quality, and we're going to talk about that later this week. But what he cared about most was his faithfulness and his connection 
to God. And because of that, everything else fell into place. You see, I fear that in some instances across our history, we have seen a bit of a missional drift. We have, in some instances, either lost the priority or have put the priority of what Adventist education is a little bit aside as we try to model ourselves after the priorities of other schools, whether it's sports programs or whether it's all the other things that we see around us in education. If our goal in Adventist education is to restore in man the image of his maker, to bring him back to the perfection in which he was created, to promote the development of body, mind, and soul, that the divine purpose is his, in his creation might be realized, if this is the primary focus of what we're doing, then everything in our educational system must revolve around this, not anything else. And so we must ask ourselves the difficult questions. I believe that Adventist education has never been more relevant than right now. But the only way we are going to be an accompaniment to the church's mission is if we are in complete alignment with what God has called Adventist education to be, with no wavering to the left or the right. And God will help us do it. He birthed Adventist education. Do you know how powerful education is in the life of a young person? There are some sick world leaders that have lived in our history that understood the importance and value of education. One leader tried to take over the entire world, Adolf Hitler. And the education that some of those young people experienced from young age all the way through before they joined the military was to indoctrinate their mind and to persuade them to think in a certain way Yes, education is so incredibly powerful and the the malleability of a young mind to be guided is a sacred trust. And so yes, all of us in every facet of our church, whether it's the home, the church itself, the educational system, we must all examine where our priorities are. We cannot point fingers across the table at one another. We must look at what role we play. When I became superintendent, I mean, we're facing some challenges. If you look at the enrollments over the last 10 years and more, we continue to bleed enrollment loss across our system. And finances are a tremendous challenge, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that tomorrow. Finances are a challenge. Missional alignment is a challenge. The priority of the home is a challenge. We have all kinds of different things going on that are putting tremendous pressure on the success of Adventist education. But I, I, I vowed to myself when I became superintendent, I cannot focus on everything around. I can't affect how much money a family makes. I cannot affect whether or not 
a, a, a pastor has a priority for Adventist education. I cannot affect those kinds of things in a, in a direct uh, turning of the head or, or, or increasing of a salary. I cannot affect those things. What I can affect is my priority. And I focused on and am focused on making sure the priority of what I'm doing and what we are doing as a system is aligned with what God has asked us to do because that's what we can change, what we have the ability to choose. You see, the altar of God was in the belly of the Jordan River. It was not in the rivers of Syria. God's presence was in the river then, and later on, the presence of Jesus himself was in the river too. When John the Baptist baptized Christ at the beginning of his ministry, and the Holy Spirit fell upon Jesus, and God said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We must go to the Jordan, friends. That is where the blessing is. We must go to the source of God's blessing and the origination of what he has called us to be as a people and what he has called Adventist education to be as a ministry. Staying relevant to the church's end-time mission is a vertical priority. It's not a horizontal priority. If we get caught up in looking around us, we will lose our way. There have been many navigators who, in the calculation of their trajectory at sea, understood that a minute miscalculation could end up being a tremendous catastrophe. We have a laser-pointed vision that has been given to us by Ellen White in the book Education. We need to make sure that we as an educational system are completely and totally aligned with that mission if we expect God's blessing. And families, I would encourage you, when it comes to the choices of your, for your children's education, yes, Adventist education isn't perfect. The church isn't perfect. We're all human beings. But I will tell you, as I look across the scope of Adventist education in our schools, I see a dedicated teacher in that classroom who loves young people, who has given their life to serving young people. And I would just encourage you, especially in today's world with all of the, all of the things that are being propagated in our society as acceptable and yet are at some of the most base levels of immorality. I would encourage you to consider carefully 
the choices that you are making for your children. And I would plead to you to consider Adventist education. Young people are, they spend the most time of their day in school, except for the summer. And I don't know about you, but I desperately want my children, my four children, in no matter what atmosphere or environment they find themselves in, to have each of those atmospheres as consistent with the atmosphere that I'm trying to create in my home as possible. We're going to talk about the three-legged stool a little later this week. But the home, the school, and the church working together to raise up a child who is a good citizen on this earth and who is being trained to be a citizen for heaven, I couldn't think of a more important choice that we can make as parents than to have our children for those seven hours a day, five days a week, basically a a 40-hour-a-week job, to be in an environment where those principles are consistently upheld. You see, we can, we can have our children in, in a Christian school, but if it's not a Seventh-day Adventist school, it's not teaching our children the values of Adventism, which is extremely distinct and relevant to the end of time, of people being prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ and sharing the gospel with as many as possible. I also believe that it's important that we not have our children in an environment where God is not talked about at all, where God is, as a matter of fact, their, their religion is, is anti-God in some senses. So please consider carefully these choices. And as we conclude today, we know that God can help us We know that if we turn to him, he will lead us. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, so much for the ministry of Adventist education and the distinct role that it plays in the raising up of children to know you as their personal Savior and to go out and share the gospel with a dying world. Lord, we pray that we as a people would come together, that we would examine ourselves. Lord, we do not want to look at the rivers of Damascus as something better. Lord, we want to follow your prescription. We want to be at the very heart of your will. So help us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.